What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. This week's intro is a little bit different, and I'm going to apologize for it because my computer has crashed and I am at my wit's end trying to sort out today's edit for the podcast. I don't know whether it's my hard drive or whether it's my computer, but it took me four hours to upload the video. And, uh, and so I'm really just struggling to get this thing out. Um, my guest today is Philip Goodman. Now, Philip is a very interesting young man. He actually has been nominated in for Forbes magazine's 30 under 30 in the area of finance in Europe. And uh, that obviously stands out and immediately kind of caught my caught my uh, notice. But what's particularly interesting for me in this particular in uh, conversation is that Philip's career path has similarly followed my own insofar as I started out as an architect, practiced in a large firm before starting my own firm, doing smaller stuff and getting into development. And that is exactly what Philip is doing. Now, I'm particularly interested in Philip's story because I, having gone down this very same path, I, I understand some of the compromises that are taken. And it's interesting to see how he is going about uh, building his business. And, and so it's some, a lot of good lessons here for all of you listeners. And just interesting from my own perspective to see if it would have been different for me starting today rather than 20 years ago. Um, the other thing that I think you're going to glean from this is just the, the path that Philip has taken has very much been based on a lot of networking. And for those of you, the young people who are listening in to this episode this week, listen to some of the tips from Philip on how he managed to land these jobs in these really impressive big firms. Philip worked for Norman Foster. Now, Norman Foster, for those of you who are not familiar with the world of architecture, he is just one of the most iconic figures in the architecture world. He's known for the Gherkin building in London. He's known for the, uh, the Apple headquarters in California, the one that looks like a big flying saucer. He's known for Wembley Stadium. He's known for just so many massively iconic buildings around the world. And Philip worked for him and then started his own business and got into the development world. And so it's very, very interesting. But he did all of these through connections and through networking and stuff. And so there's a lot of little lessons to pick up on your way uh, listening this week. So without further ado, let me get into my conversation with Philip Goodman. You are listening to Behind the Facade, and I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher. On this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Philip Goodman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gavin. Great to have, uh, great to join you. Uh, it, it's really good to have you on. And uh, just one of the questions I ask at the very outset of every podcast is just where in the world you are coming to us from. Right. Well, I, I'm in London. I'm actually at home, which is, I think, a trend of the, the work from home um, world that we find ourselves in now. 
um, but it has its advantages and disadvantages. You might see a cat crop up on screen, but uh, <laughs> no, it's uh, I'm at home in um, southwest London. Great. And I will edit any scenes with cats kind of walking through the picture <laughs> out. Um, I was just going to say, Philip, in terms of just um, introducing yourself, I mean, you've got a, a varied career and we've just been talking offline about it. Uh, perhaps you just like to give people a, a very quick, the, the elevator pitch, as we say, as to what you do. Sure. Well, I, I'm an architect. I qualified as an architect. I studied up in uh, Glasgow at the Rennie Mackintosh School of Art. It's actually the only university that accepted me at the time, so choices were, were limited. Um, but uh, I went on from there, it's a long, long course ago, and as you'll know, being an architect yourself, um, went on from there to work in various places uh, as an intern around, um, around the world, and then took up a residency at um, Foster and Partners with Norman Foster, and was there for uh, around about seven years. I uh, had a fantastic experience there and dived into the world of development whilst uh, studying and working uh, and found some challenges uh, and opportunities that I wanted to address. Uh, I was very privileged to, to work on some fantastic projects um, at Foster and Partners and really had done what a lot of architects would want to do very early on in my career, um, combined with not having any responsibilities uh, outside of my own career. I had the opportunity to take the jump and, and, and start, start a business. Brilliant. We'll get into all of that um, in a moment. Um, before we do, I'm just kind of curious, you know, what what led you into the, you know, studying architecture? And I mean, my, my trigger moment, I kind of think back to what kind of made me interested as a teenager in the idea of, you know, construction and all that. And it was actually a trip in 1987 when I was a teenager and I, my father brought me uh, to New York City um, on a family vacation and you stop in New York City before you move on to another part of the country and just two nights in New York City and staring up with you know kind of creaking your neck looking up at the skyscrapers and stuff yeah that yeah. Blew, blew my mind and I came back absolutely convinced I was going to be an architect um, can you do you have any kind of similar insights or tell us about your story I mean, I don't think there's quite a, a sort of clear pinpoint for me. I've always been fascinated by architecture. Um, I've always been very creative, um, more so than academic. Um, and I wanted to really pursue the two worlds of creativity and academia. And architecture seemed to be that nice juxtaposition between the two. Um, my friends at school would always remember me for working on Google SketchUp and designing sort of imaginary buildings um, throughout all my breaks and time off. And I was just fascinated by the opportunity to create space from nothing and how that space could add to both the visual environment, but how it could also impact people's lives, just in how you use a property. Um, focus very residential when I was playing around, designing dream homes myself, um, and, and then had the opportunity to work on real projects of course that, that weren't just residential commercial institutional um, but it, I think it was just that interest in how something that people use all the time can play such a pivotal role in their lives and how it's a social responsibility to deliver quality and there's a lot of architecture that isn't good um, and I think architects have that social responsibility to look at the bigger picture socially environmentally um, culturally and and respond accordingly to that mm, interesting yeah 
And certainly your career, I mean, Foster, we're going to get into your your time at Foster, but you mentioned that you were an intern at various other places around the world. Tell us about your your kind of experiences before you joined Foster. Sure, it was it was chasing girls. It was, <laughs> it was working in different places overseas through, through girls, the girlfriends that I had um, at university. Um, so actually, I worked in New York for a period of time, an American girl there. Um, I worked for a firm that got bought by um, Gothney Siegel, um, so sort of reputable firm uh, in, in New York City. Uh, I also met a lecturer who's a good friend of mine now, Kevin Erickson, who did a lecture at Glasgow. Uh, and I went up to him after the lecture and said, hey, I'm going to be in the city. Can I come and do some work with you? Uh, he said yes. So we did a few competitions together. Um, so it was nothing as mainstream as what I did back here in London, but it gave me an opportunity and mechanism to um, to, to be in the States, to pursue uh, a relationship and to get an experience that's definitely shaped me, similar to as you've described, Gavin, working in New York City as a, as a prospective architect at the time was, was just fascinating. The, you know, one of my favourite books is written by Jane Jacobs and just understanding how the city works socially and almost organically and making those observations on how people make places it's not the buildings that form the places, it's the people that use them. And actually that then went on to one of the sort of concepts that I studied at university, which is something called affordance, which is how objects and spaces can afford different social uses to different people, depending on their desires. So a fire hydrant is just that, but it's also a place to perch when you're waiting for a taxi. So that mm. objects has a level of affordance. And I love that, seeing how spaces are used by people. And New York was a great opportunity to see that. Interesting, actually, it just popped into my head the your the term you use affordance, and one of the uh, one of the items that this is a, this is kind of a cheeky way of saying it, but um, we have uh, we've installed uh, gardens in some of the projects that we've worked on, and we put these beautiful stone sort of raised flower beds, and uh, with a nice stone edging, and uh-huh. the the which is also the affordances that uh, the skateboarders love it and uh, they, they do their they do their <laughs> yeah, flips yeah. up and they scratch the whole thing and they destroy it yeah. completely so we end up putting in it. these <laughs> you end up putting in these little stainless steel kind of nibs to try to prevent that yeah absolutely well you know that goes into a wider conversation of is that a negative thing it's you know nice to see people in space obviously there's the damage aspect which isn't appreciated but it's interesting you say that and, and they will go on to talk about it but one of the projects that I worked on at Foster and Partners, we had to design the angle of the facade so that pigeons couldn't sit on it. Right. And okay, you know, yeah. they're 30 degrees is the magic number there. So anything more than 30 degrees, they can't stand on. But if you did it flatter, they'd of course sit on it. The, the, the professional advice was make the other buildings more attractive for the birds to sit on. Mm. Um, and that comes back, I guess, to that, that architect's responsibility. And we have to know so much about everything famous quote that an engineer knows a lot about one thing architects know a lot about a little about everything yeah but it's so true and but that's what's interesting right that's what fascinates us and um, it's so true yeah keeps us learning and the jobs that i've always enjoyed the most um personally were actually the ones for my myself where you know the residential project where you're kind of doing up your own home or something like that i always just really sort of poured over the drawings and really kind of you know, because it's because it's for yourself. There's no kind of commercial aspect to it, so you kind of you can just yeah. indulge. You know, tell us first about getting a job at 
at Foster's because Foster, for anyone who's listening, who is not familiar with you know, the art world of architecture, Norman Foster is probably one of those what we call star architects and they're, they're, they're an iconic uh, architect. They've been around, like Norman Foster, I can remember when I was studying in college, he was like the name that we all tried to kind of emulate, try to copy some of him and Renzo Piano and all of these Richard Rogers and stuff. And he was just one of these guys that did the most incredibly modern looking buildings. And, and he's gone on to become this, uh, well, he's, he's obviously, he's one of the most successful architects on the planet. Um, big firm in London, flies his own airplane or helicopter or something. I remember hearing different things. And, um, and so clearly, you know, enormously successful in the scheme of things. So tell us like, first of all, how did you come to start working for uh, Foster and Partners? And then you mentioned earlier that you actually worked quite closely with Norman himself. So there, I got all of my jobs pre-starting Eureka through networking. Um, So it was actually an an old school acquaintance, um, different periods of our lives that were at the same school, but I reached out to him and said, hey, I'm looking for a job, can you help? And he put me in contact with a few different uh, uh, architectural firms in in London and and Norman Foster Foster and Partners was one of them. And I applied, I got put directly in contact with with one of the um, partners there and sent through my portfolio, spent a lot of time working on that and the cover letter and got an interview relatively quickly, I think. And and I think from memory, I was told that I was one of the, nothing to do with my caliber, just timings, but one of the first people rehired after the um, sort of big redundancies that the whole industry went through the 2008-9. So I had my interview quite quickly, but took me a long time to get a response back. Um, So much so that I had another job offer working again in New York City, that I took the job, had moved out there. And after a week of being there, they said, you've been off the job. And back in London. I went up to my boss and said, I'm really sorry to do this, but uh, I've got to take this opportunity and I'm, I'm off next week. So much to his uh, frustration and disappointment, he said, off you go. And uh, I came straight back to London uh, wow. and started there. Um, so that, that's, that's how I got in, really. Um, I just, we'd just done our third year presentation. So I had a lot of materials um, polished and finished that I could put together. I had the beautiful books that all students do. And so I had a nice portfolio to take to them, um, which definitely helped. And um were you qualified were you qualified I was, I was part part one at the time okay. um, so i'd done done my first three years and i went for them for my my first year out and um, did a year there explored going back to glasgow um scotland have a quite slightly different system it, it matches up but it's it's a four-year degree rather than three and two so it's not quite as simple although you can change um and because of my work in, in the States, I've been offered a position, a place to study at a university in, in America, um, which was actually one of the toughest decisions I had to make. I got accepted on my birthday. I remember getting the email in the office um, to study at the GSD um, at Harvard. And I'd always wanted to study there. And I'd found my passion with architecture now. So having got accepted into Glasgow, being the only university that accepted me 
and not actually quite making the grades that they asked me to. Um, so there's a bit of negotiation and, and begging to get in. I'd, I'd found this thing that I was passionate and, and seemingly had a, you know, an interest in, and, and that's what Harvard saw. Um, so it's quite a big decision because it's it's one hundred eighty thousand dollars for a three year career, and, and and as an architect, architects aren't necessarily the most highly compensated. Yeah. Um, so true. from the return on investment, was it going to be the right decision? That it was the best school to study architecture at. Um, so I spent a lot of time speaking to my um, boss at Fosters, who I'd become very close with, um, very much a mentor for me professionally and in life, um, a guy called Michael Jones. Um, and I spoke with him and sort of said, along with others, that we're not going to change our view on you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all about your portfolio and we've seen what, what you can do. We've, you know, we've got through that stage now. So it's not really going to change us. And we're not going to pay you more if you go there. That's not how we work. So I thought that's interesting. That's the first um, negative against, against mm. this offer. Um, so they had an open day there. And I thought, I'm gonna, I've got to go to that. So I, I managed to get a flight and went over and I spoke to a few of the professors there. Um, um, I won't mention names, but certain quite high up. Uh, and said, why should I come to Harvard? And they said, it's what well, it's about the contacts you're going to get. And I thought, hold on. I mean, this is going to be about the education I'm going to get. And I think Harvard's a different conversation. I think now it's one of the biggest investment funds out there. It could, it could yeah. stop charging fees and, and still billion. sustain itself. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the education, I'm sure, would have been good, but it certainly wasn't a sales pitch. It was mm. the contacts and the network that you would get. And, you know, I was very happy where I was at the time. I wasn't looking for another job. So I thought, well, I don't need that. And I'm not going to get paid anymore. So I also went down to the Foster's office in, in New York City and spoke to the partners there and said, Are you going to pay me anymore? Is it going to be any different? And they said the same thing. So all the, 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 the facts were saying, don't, don't do it. Um, mm. It's still a little bit sad that I, I didn't go. I think it had been a great experience being there. And I'm sure I would have learned a lot. But at that point, I certainly couldn't have afforded to go. Um, so I decided to go back to Glasgow and Foster's um, sort of quasi-sponsored me through that. They put me on a contract and enabled me to work with them whenever I wanted to, weekends, holidays. Um, so that helped me pay my way through that. And that after my fourth year, which is when you officially graduate in the Scottish system, I then came back to Foster's for my summer period started working on an incredible project in New York, which was a life-changing project for me, and said, I can't go back to university. So I worked full-time and studied full-time. And that was a year of 130-hour weeks. Wow, yeah. Um, and I was doing your final year of architecture, which, as you know, and hard other work. architects listening, is hard work whilst working on a competition with Foster and Partners for a year, which, as architects will also know, is very hard work. Um, so I probably crammed three or four years of experience into one, um, and I'm very glad I did. Um, I wanted to segue into the, um, the, the actual person himself, uh, Norman Foster. I mean, being such a successful person, was there any you know, habits or behaviors that you saw from, from your position there just of what has made him so successful? What has made the business you know, grow to the, to the size that it is? Yeah, I mean, I've engaged with him. I've met him. Um, I would no way 
say that he knows who I am. Um, but I also had the luxury of doing my part three whilst um, being there. So that enabled me to dive into the business a little bit more and see a businessman now running my own. It, it, I understand how the clocks work and it gave me a little bit of an insight. I think Norman, I know Norman, he, he's, an, he's an innovator. He's a visionary. He is still very actively involved in the business um, as an architect, not as a businessman, not as a financer, as an architect. What age is he at this stage? He's in his... Uh, very good. I, yeah, I would say in his 80s. I couldn't put a number on it. Mm. Um, but he certainly was in, in and out the office when I was there and left almost four years ago. But he was in and out. Um, very involved in projects and every project um, has an incredible team of partners around him that obviously guide the projects through. But I would suggest that there isn't anything that um, is done without his input. Um, and part of that is for the continuity of the brand and, and his vision. Um, but also it affords the opportunity for people that are so close to a project that to have someone with that knowledge and experience just take a step back and say, have you thought about this? And there were often cases where he would just have a very small suggestion, which you think, wow, why, why didn't we think of that? Mm. And so that was very refreshing and, and just inspiring to see. He, he, his mind works in three dimension, which you would expect from an architect, but you know, he, he can understand everything perfectly. And from the facades to the buildings that we, we were working on, there's never a point where he wouldn't get it. And it was just fantastic to see and for him to bring this, um, yeah, innovation is the word that always comes to mind to mm. everything that we did. Um, so, yeah, an incredible man. And you worked on a project that really interests me and it's another iconic name and another iconic brand, Bloomberg. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, what, what's interesting is uh, people recognize that the Bloomberg headquarter building in London costs something like a billion pounds to build or something like that. And everyone kind of blows their mind. But then you you think, well, this, you know, this this person went out and spent about that amount on his presidential bid in the US election like, yeah. against. Yeah, <laughs> different world, right? <laughs> yeah, totally different yeah. world. And so, I mean, just tell us about working on that project, because. I mean, the, the the scale of investment and stuff is absolutely huge, but you did it working in, in, in Norman Foster's office. And so, you know, first of all, it was it was a privilege. Um, it was a fantastic project to be involved in. And the time at which I joined the business, it just been going through the planning stages. And I took it with the team, incredibly talented team, who many remain very close friends, um, all the way through to practical completion. So you know, coming out of university, working on a real project in London that's getting built to that caliber, Sterling Prize winning, was a opportunity that I will forever be grateful for and enabled me to, to really tip that architectural itch, among with other things, quite early on. Um, but Mike Bloomberg um, is an engineer, uh, you know, so he has a creative mind. Yeah. Um, I think him and Norman were an incredible team. Um, you know, both of their visions combined by this checkbook to support it meant that really anything was possible. And it's not one of these buildings, as you see, Kevin, that is glitzy. You know, his name is very carefully etched onto one stone column. 
it's very understated. It's about giving back to the city. Mm. It's in both terms of its design and its social context. There's no canteen in the building. That's because we're, you know, his belief was that your guests in the building, his employees, so you should go out and explore and eat in the city, not mm. be contained within your workspace. Um, the way that the building was designed for social collision and collaboration, um, you know, completely open plan, um, the staircase that spiraled through, the fact that you had to enter onto the sixth floor of the pantry to then work your way back down to the desk meant that you couldn't be isolated. And that informed collaboration and that integration that, that it improves any business. That's um, interesting. Yeah, it's very much like um, when, when um, Steve Jobs was designing the building um, that, he, that, that Apple were working in at the time, he did, he did something very similar. He wanted people to kind of meet at a central point and, and, and kind of bounce off of one another and to create that kind of interaction that, that, that happens. Whereas if you're going from your little boxy office to the elevator, down to the canteen, back up to your boxy office, like that's it. You don't ever meet anyone except if you happen to bump into them in the lift or something. Absolutely. And, and that's, you know, we can digress into the impacts of working from home. But I think as a general rule, the more senior people within a business quite enjoy it because there's less disruptions and they can focus. But the impacts to, to the younger generation that won't have that opportunity to hear people, to socially collide into people, to go up to a desk and ask a question. I mean, it's not, especially in the creative industry, you know, scanning, sending a drawing across doesn't have the same effect as sitting down with a cup of coffee mm. and sketching. You, you, you don't get that level of quality working yeah. with it's so true there's two things that pop into mind when you from from this um, straight away first of all the mention about the canteens one of the issues that um, so I run this business park here in Dublin and the um, we have a number of big multinationals and they have moved into these taken an entire building and the first thing they do is put in a canteen for their staff and it's dreadful it's great for the staff because they can incentivize their staff and they subsidize the, the meals and stuff. So from that point of view, I can see why it would do it. But from me as a, as a person who's running the park, it's dreadful because everyone just goes down to their canteen and sits in and we have, we have food and beverage outlets here. We have a cafe, we have a restaurant and stuff. And those guys don't get anywhere near the numbers of people that they would if there was no canteens. Yeah. You have people mingling and we have a, a Wednesday market that we put on here and where there's, you know, the, the stalls that come in with the different cuisines and stuff. And that's our way of introducing a bit of variety. But if you were to bring in another two or three restaurants, there should be sufficient people working in the park to, to actually accommodate that. But with so many canteens, it just doesn't work. So it's... Yeah. Um, that is one aspect. And then the other thing you mentioned is the work from home thing. And in the professional, we have a couple of professional firms here in the park, like architects and engineers, and um, they are the ones that have said like most vehemently that they can't wait to get back because things like graduate students and stuff, you cannot, you know, train up somebody remotely. I can completely relate to what you're talking about in terms of like, I'm a senior executive and for me working from home or working from the office with the door closed, it's just perfect because I've got no distractions. I can kind of get on with it. Whereas somebody knocking on the door, pestering me, well, they say, I say pestering, but actually they're looking for feedback or whatever. and, And so I should be open to that, but it is, it's so true. Like a young person, 
you you learn so much from osmosis just sort of sitting there overhearing the conversation like even if your boss is having a difficult conversation it's you're learning from that difficult how yeah. they how they yeah. phrase certain things and you know and then they put down the phone and they might say that effing client you know yeah absolutely that that was a big thing that actually i was told very early on from from the partner that i work with is, is don't wear headphones and, you know you see a lot of architects plug in and they're just you know working away but for exactly that reason listen to how they speak to clients how they solve problems how they talk to other people as a manager and as a as a, a, a professional as a consultant and you know that that is osmosis you, you've got to take all of that in which you lose by working from home um it, it will be interesting to see how it doesn't impact the quality of, of professionals in the next 10 15 uh years and yeah. if it will ever go back and again that's a separate conversation and, and of course there are advantages to working for home in terms of well-being and, and quality of life and, and infrastructure was overwhelmed you know, cramming onto a tube or a train it was becoming expensive and tiresome and that opportunity to work one or two days at home and maybe that is your private time that's where you get everything off your plate and then you go in and when you're in you're a little bit more open to engage and have those interfaces with people and and that could be a positive thing mm. um i don't think the office is dead I, I don't believe that at all um i think it will be this hybrid um work from home uh, situation where it's two or three days a week either side yeah i think you're right um go, just going back to the to the your your time on the bloomberg building first of all for anybody who's who's not familiar with it um, can you just give us some of the accolades, uh, whether you agree with them or not, um, the, the various accolades that the building has managed to earn? Sure. Well, I mean, the, the main one and most proud of is it won the Sterling Prize and Sterling Prize being architecture's highest or one of the highest accolades you can be awarded for a project. Um, so that was something that we were very proud of and, and very well deserved. It's also one of the most sustainable buildings, if not the most sustainable building in, in Europe in terms of its accolades. Um, and it is just socially a fantastic space. I mean, Mike Bloomberg had the opportunity to make the building bigger than it could have been, um, but he gave back to the city and formed these public squares. So I think for me, in particular my interests, the biggest success of the project, the, the biggest um positive that it gives back is is, is what it gives to the city mm. um i mean you would have seen it walking around people just sitting outside you know re reintroducing the, the road from cannon street to st paul's through the arcade uh it's just fantastic the river river walk underneath um we discovered one of the largest findings of, of roman artifacts during the excavations the Temple of Mithras was already known to be on site, which had been relocated previously to its non-original position. Um, but there's now a museum, a free museum underneath the building. The temple has been reinstated back to its original location. The mm. artifacts found celebrated. And, you know, as a developer, thinking of the cost of doing that that doesn't directly benefit you, and to yeah. see that this man and corporation do that, it, it's it's inspiring. Yeah, he very doesn't, inspiring. Doesn't need to do that, and and that's just one example of the of the ways he's given back. Yeah, um, because I know uh, quite a few developers from from the from the sort of eighties and stuff, and 
if they had been in the same position, it would have been bulldozed, you know, say nothing about that. Yeah, <laughs> it would just yeah. be, you know, washed away. Like, Yeah, no, but you, you reinstated it. And if you get a chance and anyone listening gets a chance, go, you book online. Um, but um, it was worked with a, with a sort of a, a stage designer. That's undermining their true capacity, but I forget what we would call them as a consultant. Um, but they did the, the effects for the World Trade Center Memorial. Okay. Um, so they had some fantastic light um tricks um that that sort of form the external walls of the temple sound displays that when you actually go in you get as much of an interactive immersive experience as you possibly could get from something that is thousands of years old i think one of the um you know the, the other th- fascinating things is it and something i can talk more on because i worked specifically on it was the was the natural ventilation aspects of the building now most offices as you know can't open the windows um, for, for different reasons um, and the typically air conditioning, which in itself is very unsustainable. So the concept of getting natural airflow through a building, particularly of that size, working with the buoyancy of how it enters and then gets drawn through the building was an incredible feat of, of engineering. And the facade that hangs off are not only solar shading and not only beautiful, but they are naturally ventilated pieces of engineering. So it allows the air to pass through the facade, through an attenuator that takes out the sound from the busy street. Depending on where it comes through the building, it can be warmed or cooled. It integrates with the ceiling. And that whole sort of design just to get air into the building and reduce the carbon footprint and the performance of the building is, is fantastic. And again, something that didn't need to be done. And that was something that, so when I joined, it was an aspect of the building that was never really, it was after planning, it would have been a huge change, huge cost that the client wanted to explore. And I think it's not unfair to say that the general consensus is that it might not happen. You know, it's too late in the game for this drastic change to happen to the facade. So I was put on it because it probably wasn't gonna happen. And a few months later, it happened. So the building got changed to a naturally ventilated facade. Wow. And at great cost, um, you know, mock-ups have been done and redone. And, you know, again, it goes back to the, to the vision of both Norman and, and Mike Bloomberg to constantly improve the building at whatever cost and, and give back to the users in terms of the, the feel with inside it, but also the, the, the greater environment. It's, it's incredible. And tell us, you've started your own business since leaving Foster's and uh, I mean, you're on smaller projects compared to that, but what, what are the lessons that you've taken from working in Foster and that, and you've kind of brought them into your own business now that you have? Yeah, great, great question. I think, um, I think Norman Foster and Foster and Partners add value through design and architects too often try to take on more than they're actually professionally equipped to do and that they have the knowledge to do. So one of the main aspects that Foster and Partners did incredibly well was integrated supply chain. So they design the intent, the look and feel, the performance, but then they work with the suppliers and the contractors, often through a two-stage tender process to work together and develop that aspect of the building. So it comes from something very well designed, but not buildable necessarily, to working with the people that actually know how to build it to deliver the best product. 
So then Foster and Partners are constantly monitoring the aesthetics and the performance of that product whilst it's getting built. So that integrated supply chain, sort of vertical integration, and, and that was something that Foster's did incredibly well. Everything, they had everything in-house. Doesn't mean that they didn't use engineers or environmental designers, but when you wanted that coffee conversation of how can we make this more sustainable, you go and have a chat with that team. When you're worrying about how it's going to stand up, you go chat with the in-house engineers. So that vertical integration helped you to control the whole process and deliver the best quality of product because you're controlling it. And that was one of the biggest lessons that I took into Eureka was the vertical integrated approach. So we are a, a property investor. We're an FCA regulated investment vehicle, but we have everything in-house. So we raise the money, we find the sites, we have architects, project managers, construction managers, contractors, all in-house right. to really manage that whole procurement process to deliver the best quality in terms of adding value. And the other thing, which I briefly talked about, is, is that Foster's are designers. They, they make design good. And I truly believe that good design adds value. And that's something that we try to do at Eureka. Yes, we're at a different scale, but if someone falls in love with a property through good design, they're going to pay more for it. It's not rocket science, yeah. but that's our philosophy. So make someone fall in love with the property. It's their biggest expenditure. 99% of the population is going to be their biggest expenditure. So give them something that makes them happy, that they can see themselves raise a family in, um, that they can you know, go through life and go through all the celebrations that life has to offer. But design through affordance also, which we've touched on, can give that um, added value approach. So those, I think, are the two main things that I took from my time at Foster and Partners, um, delivering good quality design, vertically integrated structure, integrating the supply chain, and as a manager as well, not taking no for an answer. You know, that you've already mentioned another visionary, Steve Jobs, but one of his things, well, just because it's not been done before doesn't mean it can't be done. Mm. And that's a little bit more about our financial model than our architectural procurement. But, you know, that no isn't a, isn't an option for me. It's, tell, um, tell us about your financial model. I was looking at your website and I, and I saw that it's, it's quite a, an unusual approach to it. So tell us, describe. It's very unusual. Um, it's, it's the same cake that everyone's eating. It's just cut differently. Um, that started when I did my first development up in Glasgow. Um, I found a, a lovely um, four-bedroom sandstone building in the West End for £150,000. Um, huge 14-foot high ceilings, beautiful property. Didn't have a kitchen, wouldn't touch the bathrooms and needed a full refurb. So I thought, I can do this. Um, I can add value to this property. I've always been interested in in residential that's where I started and, and taking on that step as you did but I couldn't fund it I couldn't get the funding it was a very difficult process there were too many hands touching the money quite frankly hands touching the money that had no idea about adding value they the money was coming from someone and it was going through so many conduits to get to me and it was laborious and it was not possible within the time frames that I was working with so the only other option I had was, was putting forward a business plan and going to friends and family as any small business owner would. So I went to them and said, hey, can you help me buy this property? I've got £30,000 in savings. That's all I had to my name. I can afford to do the renovation costs, but I need your help buying it. So 
if you put your money in, I'll put my money in. So that was the first investment concept for Eureka. I then thought, hold on, the thought of charging you fees to give me your money, which a lot of investment funds do, doesn't make any sense to me. You're giving me your money to do something that I need to do to generate an income for me. Why should I, what right do I have to charge you fees? So many investment funds do that and it's completely outdated. Um, you can see with apps like Robinhood and, and a lot of these more contemporary funds don't charge fees, but it often comes at the compromise of professional advice. You could yeah. go onto one of these apps, put all of your life savings in and lose it all. So that didn't sit well with me. So I thought, not only am I going to put my own money in, but I'm going to go in a subordinate debt. So before you lose a penny, I'm going to lose everything that I put in because you're trusting me to deliver this scheme. I'm saying that I'm professionally equipped to do so. So I should put my money where my mouth is. And then, so that was the second concept. The third being, I shouldn't get any money out of this until the end. So we'll do it on a profit share. So those are the three concepts that really co-investment, subordinate debt, um, and profit share. And we still, as a business, don't take on any third-party debt because as we sort of our starting conversation before we hit record, that works well if it works, but can carry a lot of risk. Mm, yes, um, yes. And at the time I started the business, it was when and bank interest rates are still very low. People were looking for a capital preservation opportunity that delivered a little bit more in the bank. So I wanted to set up an asset-backed capital preservation investment model that allowed people the confidence and security akin to a bank that got them a little bit more money. So that's what started the investment model. And from that first property, it's grown. We're in contract now for 107 units. Um, we're FCA regulated. We have investors all around the world. And we are getting confidence from people because we are accountable. Right. And people, investors know that if they lose, we've lost. And investors, uh, sophisticated investors and any investor should know that if you put money in, you may well lose it, which is all well and good if someone else is going to take that risk with you. If someone's willing to lose your money and they've taken their fee up front and there's no repercussion from them and their only response is you should have read the small print, mm. that doesn't sit well with me. And yeah. that's what we're trying to change in the investment sphere. And it's a slow process because we're swimming upstream and, you know, we raise a lot of money from people that charge fees. So, you know, that's a difficult conversation to have, but investors know it's the right thing to do. We know it's the right thing to do. Um, and we're slowly breaking through. And when, when you're, when you're taking money from investors, is it in the form of a first charge kind of debt? Yeah, yeah, right. absolutely. So, so you, very you don't bring stage. partners in. So no, at the very early stages of the business, I mean, the first property was in my name. So it was just a contract that said you get the first charge security. As the business grew, much like all developers, we were acquiring in companies. Um, they held shares, as did the developer in the company. And they were given a first charge and the security of that. Uh, and now it's slightly more complicated as we moved into the fund structure, but the principles are still the same. Uh, we co-invest on every deal uh, and they're underwritten by the capital that we put in. So your investors put in capital and you put in capital as secondary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, if, so if they get so paid effect, and before you get paid. Yeah. So in a very, 
Well, no, we they get their money back before we get our money. Okay, gotcha, yeah. the profit is split. So once we hit the profit stage, so I typically give three examples. I say if we're buying a half a million pound home, and um, the investors would be at one or a group of, of three or four, put in the money to buy that half a million. Eureka, and my business then um, pay for the legal fees and stamp duty. So we want the investors to be purely secured against the asset value, no overheads. So we pay for that, and then we pay for the development costs. So we are responsible for making the right decision on what's going to add value. So we might put in a quarter of a million. In an ideal situation, that probably sells for a million, and the, and the 250 profit is split. Is it 50-50, or how, is it, how do you split No, Eureka takes slightly more of the pie because we are taking a lot of the risk uh, course, as a subordinate yeah. investor, and we're taking no – we don't charge any fees, so there's no uplift on – um, our contractors or the management it's just we take nothing until we deliver what we promised for you right um so in a break-even scenario you know, 2000 mate structure maybe that property expecting to sell for a million might sell for 750 everyone gets their money back unharmed um but if something really goes wrong either through our initial appraisal on the site value or our development decisions and that property might sell for 650 well that's our fault You've we've, lost done something, we've done something wrong and we, we, we take that loss. That's the right thing to do. So um, the five, so using that example, the 500 that goes in, the, the, the people who've put the 500, there's no coupon on that or anything. It's just... Whatever, no, we've, we've, the, explored, we've explored that over as the business has grown and particularly as we're taking on large projects, that sort of model becomes more challenging as the asset that we're buying might be 3 million and the development cost might be 9 million. You know the risk for war platform there really is yeah. warped uh, into the the investors' favour. Um, so we've we've looked at exploring that, but we, it, much with any business, it's it's uh, um, we like the simplicity of investors going to the asset. We fund the cost that we are taking responsibility for. Um, so we're working on structures internally at the moment that enable us to keep that that simplicity. Mm. Very interesting. And I noticed that you've obviously made some uh, some headlines with this because I noticed that you're you've been nominated for the Forbes 30 under 30 uh, in the finance space. So congratulations on that. Um, And what would you say makes I mean, is is it your approach that that has caught the attention of of the likes of Forbes and stuff? Yeah, I think it's nice to see an architect on a finance list. It's very rare that architects (laughs) are linked to financial um, um, strengths. No, I, I think it, it, it's very simply that we're just trying to do the right thing. You know, I think the way, and it, it, and it's not it's not innovative what we're doing. This has been done before. You know, it's how wealth managers and, and funds used to operate. The partners were putting their cash in, and then leverage happened, and suddenly the partners could mix their million quid up with ten million of debt, and suddenly their interest in making the right decision might not have been a spin because it's mixed up with someone else's money. Um, and, you know, that was what led to the, the crash and, and, you know, some great movies on it in the States and explains it quite well. I forget the name of the movie. The um, Big Short. and uh, The Big Short, that's it. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, and, and there's a few documentaries on Netflix at the moment um, that, that talk about that idea, but it's just that accountability that's been lost. And so what we're doing is not new. It's just almost trying to go full circle again. And just people, I think, struggle to trust some 
financial advisors and wealth managers because of that lack of accountability. And as I said, this doesn't do me in good stead when I go to them looking for investment, but it's unfortunately how I feel and what we're going to keep pushing through. Uh, long may it last. In, uh, just in terms of uh, one of the questions that I have is you're doing a lot of um, sort of residential projects at the moment. And uh, are you seeing something that I've noticed in the commercial world is that ESG and this whole sustainability and carbon emissions and reductions, yeah. that's starting to come to the forefront in the commercial side. Are you seeing that happening in terms of the funding side and in terms of just investors and their their approach? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I've already spoken about my interest in sustainability. So what I'm about to say isn't meant to demean that, but I think a lot of funds use it as a as a as a tactic and a play. Greenwash. It's good, yeah, it's good. You know, let's raise some money on our on sustainability play. And it's nice for people to have a conversation about doing something that's good. You know, they've not put their money into something that don't, people don't want to talk about. They can also talk about a positive investment. So we certainly see that from a lot of investors that we've approached that are you being sustainable with your approach? What is your um, sustainability strategy? How are you reducing carbon on your developments? A lot of housing authorities and, and councils require that anyway. Um, but it's certainly a, an attraction to investors to offer that as a benefit beyond just the environmental sustainability, but also that social sustainability. And that's a trend that we, by chance, have been building on. So one of the aspects of, of what UECO fell into is that, that London was becoming unaffordable. You know, I couldn't afford, I had a great job. I couldn't afford to buy a house in London. Mm. Um, a lot of my friends and colleagues were in the same position at the time. An average property price was 550, average salary 60. So unless you've got a quarter of a million pounds tucked away as a deposit, you're not buying in London. And that's out of reach for most people. So what were people doing? They were moving outside of London. They were looking for a more affordable life. And actually with that affordability often came quality because uh, you've got more space, you've got a better quality of life. COVID then hit. And people no longer needed to work in the cities and people were actively pursuing that better quality of life. And the population in London, I think for the first time in a while, had decreased with people moving out of the city. And so that is a trend that we looked at in terms of affordability, but socially is now what a lot of investors want to do. So we're in conversations now, particularly with American investors about, you know, New York seen it. I spoke to a chap in uh, investor in New York a few days ago. Commercial units are struggling because those office workers that were buying sandwiches five days a week are now buying sandwiches two days a week. Yeah. I've and we're going to see that in London. And you only have to walk through the square mile at the weekend to see how dead it is. And, and that is going to expand a little bit into the weekdays. Maybe not so in, directly in the financial industries because they've got to be there for their, you know, what they do. Um, but I think other people are going to have that opportunity to move out of the city. They're going to be able to get a bigger house with what they can afford. They're only going to be required to, to um, commute to work two or three days a week. So that means they're happy to accept the hour and a half commute rather than limit it to an hour. And therefore, funds and investors are interested in that social movement into commuter belt areas of London. Now, why have larger investment funds not done that previously? Well, it's a lot easier to put half a billion pounds into a tower block in central London 
than it is in outside of London because the values don't compensate it. So you've then got multiple sites and that comes with its management difficulties. So what we've been working on over the last four years is how do you solve those management constraints? How do you develop a kit of parts? And going back to your earlier question about what I took away from Foster's is, is that kit of parts. You look at a lot of Foster buildings and they have similarities. The detailing is exquisite. You, you know, I used to be able to walk past a Foster's building and just know it was them just by the way that the building touched the floor. But what they have is a kit of parts that they often use in other projects. Um, and that's what we've taken into Eureka. So we've designed this system that we can give our kit of parts to a local team of builders that will then have the professional support from us, the funding from us. They don't have to worry about getting paid and don't have to worry about getting tenders out, which they'd have to do by themselves. So they come and work with us and suddenly we can then solve that granular modular issue of how do you put half a million into commuter belt areas? Well, we can do it because we've got this infrastructure. And that is a problem that we were looking to solve and, and we're getting very close to solving it. But that's typically, I believe, why a lot of these larger funds focused on prime locations because it was the ease of deploying capital. Yeah, very quick and easy. Yeah. Um, I'm conscious of the time. Um, for, in terms of you know my final couple of questions, um, I always like to ask, first of all, the best advice that you've got in the last number of years working in your career or prior to that? Uh, great question. Um, I think the best advice that I've, I've had is, is always hire people more intelligent than you. Um, why would you ever want to work with someone that you feel that you are better than? So I always try to work with people um, that are better than me because um, I think that forms a really good team. So that's some of the best advice. And then I think the other side of that is, a, is a, a very good friend of mine who's now on our board gave me advice on networking. And as I mentioned, that's how I got all my jobs. And now mm -hmm. as we're raising capital, it's such an invaluable skill. It's very difficult for a lot of people to go up to someone and say hi um, and introduce themselves. But everyone likes to be in conversation. But the advice I was given on networking is he said, who are the most important people in your life? So if I asked you that question, who's the most important group of people in your life? You might say family. Family, wife. Yeah, exactly. Who are the next most important group of people? Friends. And then you might go to colleagues and networking should be structured in that same way. Not saying to make everyone part of your family, but don't jump in with what you want. You've got to get to know people, work out how you can help them. What do they want from you? And network in that way that it can be mutually beneficial and support each other. And if you can't support each other, then often it's a handshake and, and you go elsewhere. But the best way of generating business and investment is by mutually supporting each other. Um, and that sort of network advice, networking advice I was given um, has held me in very good stead. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, and the other one, the other question that I actually want to ask you, and this is, it's a slight variation on it, but, you know, well, you're still a young man, obviously, if you're 30 under 30, but what, I, uh, what I are the questions? The hairline. <laughs> <laughs> one of the questions that I have uh, often for my guests is if you were to meet your younger self, say your 18 year old self today, what advice would you give that knowing what you know now? What advice would you give yourself as an 18 year old? That's a great question. Um, I was actually asked something very similar by 
a life coach about a year ago and, and they went through similar questions like this and I didn't have an answer then but I, I would my advice to myself would be um, don't forget family I think too often as an entrepreneur you keep your head down in the sand and you get tangled up in what you're trying to build and life's too short for that but mm. you know you you don't need to make a lot of money you don't need to be completely driven by your career there are things often around you that you already have that you should never take for granted and I'm always as a self-confessed workaholic I'm actively trying to take myself back and say focus on the things that have always been around you and will always remain important um, and that would be the advice that I keep reminding myself of uh, as an older man to my younger self. Good advice and a, and a good spot to to leave it. Um, Philip, if, if anyone wants to learn more about you or connect with you, how should they do that? Yeah, great question. Um, we have our website, eurekaproperty.com. Um, if, if it's anything related to the business, but if they want to reach out to me personally, uh, I love um, speaking to people and, and giving advice where I can. So that can be done um, via LinkedIn. Uh, I'll link Instagram. up your website and your your LinkedIn there. And um, you were going to say something else. Is there another way? No, and an, an Instagram platform. Um, oh yeah, feel free to, to reach out on that as well. But uh, any way that you can get through to me, I'll be more than happy to get back to people. Philip, um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Likewise, thank you, Gavin. Hey guys, it's me again. Quick favor before you go, if you could take a moment to just leave a quick review over on iTunes or indeed if you are watching this on YouTube, please just like it and leave a comment below. If you do have any questions or topics that you'd like me to cover in future episodes, leave a comment, join the Facebook group. Alternatively, send me a DM uh, via social media and as you guys know, my handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. And don't forget to check out that link to the property investor readiness test down in the show notes. Right, so guys, that's it. I hope you are going to have an awesome week and we shall catch you all next week. Mm -hmm.